Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. From KQED. Hey, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati in for Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we are sitting down with California's top elected official on education. Tony Thurman is the state superintendent of public instruction. He oversees the department directing and enforcing education laws in California. That's right. Thurman was first elected in 2018 to the position after several terms in the state legislature. He was at the helm of the department through the pandemic and its rocky aftermath. And now he's making headlines, taking on conservative school boards, pushing policies related to transgender students. Superintendent Thurman, thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. Good to see you in person. So we want to talk a lot, you know, about your bio and we do a lot of backward looking on the show, but we kind of want to start with current events. Um, And there's a lot of bigger culture wars happening. But just this week in the Bay Area, as you probably know, we saw a really concrete example of the impact of the attention being paid to California by conservative groups. I'm talking about a bomb threat called into Jabal Elementary in Oakland, resulted in schools being uh you know, canceled for the day, came after blowback um, when the school received for hosting a gathering specifically for kids and families of color. Broad brushstrokes, like what's your reaction to that incident, the moment we're in? You know, it feels like the return to school is really colliding with a lot of these culture wars in this moment. You know, it's just heartbreaking that anyone would um, make bomb threats to students, elementary school students, babies, really, and their educators and families because they didn't agree that the school is doing some things to affirm the diversity, the beautiful diversity that exists in our state. First and foremost, we are working with city officials and school officials to make sure that everyone is safe. But we will continue to have our message loud and clear that education plays a very key role in ending hate. And hate is spiking. Um, But we think that um, we have to be the ones to show folks that um, we have beautiful diversity. We can work together and that things like inclusive education actually help students to be more successful academically. Maybe the biggest issue roiling, cultural issue roiling California schools right now is this policy transgender notification. This is a handful of school districts that are requiring teachers, requiring school staff to notify parents when their kids are expressing different gender identities than what the official records reflect. What do you see as kind of the greatest danger posed by this policy? And how is the state responding? You know, it's... um It's a fact that more than 40% of LGBTQ plus students in this country have said that they've considered suicide. That's often tied to lack of acceptance about their gender identity. Four out of 10 kids who are homeless uh, or run away often are those who were pushed out of their homes or couldn't be at home. They were rejected for, um, you know, for their gender identity. And so a policy like this put students in such danger and harm's way 
um, that it is mind-boggling that school board members who took an oath to defend the Constitution of the state and its participants would use such a mean-spirited uh, policy against them. Uh, we won't stand for that. And, um, you know, we've been vocal uh, on why we think that the law protects the privacy of students. And by the way, we also think that there you know, are important parental rights that can be supported, but we don't think that parental rights extends to putting students in harm's way. We think these are conversations that should take place between families and their students, not forcing school district staff to be the ones who tell a parent about their children's sexual identity. I mean, I can see folks who th- who see themselves as, you know, advocates or, or allies of the LGBT community saying, but uh, parents should be involved. I mean, these are their kids. Like, and and it also strikes me that we are talking about this with a really broad brushstroke. I mean, as somebody with kids in elementary school, there's a big difference between a second grader and a 10th grader, right? So I, what do you say to that pushback that like, you know, parents, these are their kids. And, and do you think we should be sort of differentiating some of these conversations around age you know, ages and what's appropriate at different age levels. Yeah, I think that, you know, the board majorities that are pushing these policies are spreading a false narrative to suggest that we don't care about parent rights. Parents do have rights. I'm a parent. You know, my kids go to school in these schools and parents never should lose their rights and they're not being asked to lose their rights. You know, parents have a right to and have processes where they can give input on what's in the curriculum taught in school. We create spaces for um, parents to be involved in every aspect of what their children are learning. These board majorities, though, they're, they're bypassing these, um, you know, these places that we have set up for parents to give input, and they're simply saying things like, if a book mentions Harvey Milk, I don't want my kids to even know who Harvey Milk is. And that's just wrong for someone who is was recognized with the Presidential Medal of Freedom and someone who's recognized as a, a Navy service person, someone who, um, you know, made great strides for the city of San Francisco and and for the LGBTQ uh, plus community in the world. Um, our notion is that students do better when they have information, when they can learn about individuals who, um, you know, reflect their background. But the research proves students do better Um, students from all backgrounds do better when they have access to learning about other cultural experiences. We should be clear. What these board majorities are pushing, they're calling it parent rights, but really what they're doing is pushing a political agenda. This is the MAGA political agenda that they are seeking to attack um, the LGBTQ plus community and kids of color. And look at what it has produced. We had a shop uh, owner killed uh, just a few weeks ago who hung a pride flag. We had over the weekend, as we marked the anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's March on Washington, we had someone um, kill people because he said he hated African-Americans. He made anti-Semitic remarks. We are at a moment in time when there are these acts of hate that are rising. And these board majorities are playing off of that to drive hate. Now they're driving violence from their policies. And I've I've made an overture to them. If they want to talk about parent rights, let's work together to find a balance of supporting parent rights in a way that maintains the safety of students um, in our communities. So what is that balance then? I mean, and how do you approach this as a parent? Uh, you know, if you your kids were grappling with these issues of gender expression in school, what would you want to see 
from their teachers? And maybe, and is there a better way, I guess, to facilitate these conversations? You know, I recently had someone tell me, he's an adult, and he told me that when he came out um, as a gay man that, you know, it was one of his teachers who he went to, who he spoke with, who helped him. Someone who was compassionate, who was a guide, who helped him connect with resources. You know, these policies take away one of the most important allies that students have at school, um, and it forces them to be in an adversarial position. Um, you know, really, if... By putting teachers kind of in the middle. Absolutely, and saying that you have to essentially out someone or, you know, and turning it into something negative and to tell on someone. You know, telling your parents that you are gay, lesbian, transgender, these are difficult conversations even in the best households. You know, why would we create adversarial situations? What these board majorities should be doing is finding ways to give parents the resources and the tools to have the hard conversations with their kids. Talking about anything with your kids can be difficult. And and I'm suggesting that these board majorities are more concerned about making a political statement than what's good for kids. They're banning critical race theory. No school in California teaches critical race theory. So they're sending a message to kids of color, we don't want you here. And the kids who are who are impacted are telling me they feel that way. I, I, I ended up at this school district in Chino Valley because students told me they felt unsafe because of how board members were treating them, threatening them on social media. I saw it for myself firsthand in a board chamber where Proud Boys were threatening me just for standing up for students. But I'll take that and I'll stand up for students every single time. You know, this has turned into a political fight. We're seeing ballot measures being written, as you mentioned, school board uh, members being elected on a lot of this. Um, And it does seem like a pretty highly organized campaign in California. You see uh, one pastor in particular who's, you know, I think helped sort of push and draft some of these um, measures. Do you feel like Democrats were caught off guard by all of this? I think the short answer is yes. Right. This is a scripted playbook is a nationally driven playbook by groups that have been losing at the ballot box in congressional races, in the White House, um, and in state legislatures. And they've made a decision that they're going to wage war at the local level, at the school district level, and the school board. And so um, Democrats and progressives and others need to um, come back with ways to, to counter this. But I've seen data that shows that there are many who don't agree with what these board majorities are pushing. Even some Republicans and conservatives have said this is not where the focus should be. I would like to challenge those at some of these school board majorities, rather than using these political measures to, you know, literally oppress their kids, they should be focusing on things like improving chronic absenteeism. You know, the school district in Chino Valley has a very high rate of chronic absenteeism. We know what that means for kids. And I've been contacted by parents in the district who've told me about gang fights, racially uh, targeted um, tension in the schools. They should be working on those things. And I'd like to help them. You know, I reached out to the board president to talk about these issues. You saw what happened in the board meeting. I spoke my one minute. They threw me out. Uh, with security and police surrounding me, um, that let me know that they didn't want to talk about issues. They just want to push a political agenda. I'm saying right now, 
I'm ready to help them, you know, make sure their kids have the resources to learn how to read, improve their chronic absenteeism rates, make sure their kids are ready for the jobs of tomorrow, and help them with intervention programs to address gangs and violence that are running rampant in some of their schools. So you mentioned those conversations, but you also said the word counter. What is, I guess, the political response to this, both right now, on the yeah. ballot. We've got uh, and two tw- more weeks in this legislative yeah, and then, session. And then <laughs> yeah. the legislative session. I mean, you've written a bill in your time uh, or two. So what? Quite a few. <laughs> should we expect anything in the next couple of weeks? I think that there are bills going forward right now. Um, I've helped to write a bill, AB 1078. This is a bill that says um, that our schools cannot ban books in the attempts to discriminate against um, LGBTQ plus kids or kids of color. If you ban a book, you will pay a fee to mitigate the impacts of that ban. What I would tell your listeners is please um, pay attention to what people put in front of you. This ballot measure will have misleading language. It'll make it sound like we're here to affirm parent rights, but what they're really trying to do is take away the right of students to be safe to explore their gender identity. And so I just think it's important that parents look out for these ballot measures, you know, be informed, don't allow yourselves to be confused. Every one of the bills that has been introduced in the legislature to try and counter these attacks on students, um, these board majorities and the pastors that you mentioned, they have rallies and they make up names and make it sound like what they're doing is really intended to help someone, but really it's intended to hurt someone. And it's dangerous. I mean, literally lives have been lost over these discussions. And what's the message that they're sending to kids? At that school board meeting, I watched person after person after person be thrown out for offering a different view. I thought I was in a reality TV show format. It was knocked down, drag out. You're out of here. You know, that's not how our school board meetings are supposed to be run. We should be role modeling for our young people that we can use civility even when we disagree. We can agree to disagree. We don't need to be disagreeable to anyone. And sadly, what we're seeing is that the tenor that these school board majorities are, are, are sending is contributing to direct violence. All right. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with California Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tony Thurman. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, Not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. 
Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here today with Guy Marzarati and California Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tony Thurman. All right. Well, we want to go back to the beginning, talk a little bit about how you ended up in this role. Um, you were born at Fort Ord in Monterey, and yes. I know you spent some time in San Jose. Tell us a little bit about your early years. I think it was um, the first six years with your mom was pretty good. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm the son of immigrants. You know, my mom was uh, born in Panama. She came to the U.S., became a teacher in San Jose. My dad was a Vietnam vet who I met for the first time uh, when I found him on the Internet um, around the time of my 40th birthday. Wow. He, he served in Vietnam. He didn't return to our family. Um, and uh, so my mom raised four kids by herself in San Jose. Um, and, um, we were all together until she got too sick to take care of us. And my mom had cancer. And when I was six, she passed away. And so the siblings got split up. I saw two of them maybe once in a 10 year period. My five-year-old brother and I got sent to live in Philadelphia to be raised by a cousin who we never met until we showed up on her doorstep. She, too, an immigrant, someone who didn't have a formal education. She took us in. You know, we struggled all the time. We didn't have food in the household sometimes. I grew up on the free lunch program, you know, food stamps and government cheese. You know, I ate so much government cheese, I thought that USDA (laughs) was a brand name (laughs) sometimes. But for us, these were programs that helped my family to overcome poverty. The most important public program to overcome poverty was getting an education. And it, it changed my life. I became a social worker. I worked with foster youth, young people coming out of the criminal justice system. And then the last 15 years, I've been a uh, city council, school board member, state legislator, state superintendent. And it's just been an honor to serve the people of the state. Well, tell us about that cousin. I don't know, other family members, friends, teachers, people in the faith community. Like, who are the people kind of lifting you up, keeping you afloat uh, at that time? All of them. You know, my cousin, uh, you know, you know, I like to say that my mom gave me life, but my cousin gave me a life. You know, she she really worked hard to make sure that we know that education could be for us and could, you know, we got to go to great public schools and she fought hard to make sure that we had everything that we needed. She worked two jobs, went to night school. She got her degree. When she graduated, she had us there, you know, to see that through hard work, you can get an education and change the course of your life. My teachers were the same. They set a high bar, and they were sending a message. It it may not have been in these words, but their message was education. You know, it was like the promise of education will help you have better circumstances than the circumstances you had when your life started. And they were making a promise that came true. And it's the message that I deliver to young people today. Education will carry you wherever you want to go. But you have to have mentors along the way. You know, as a kid, when we went to when we went to church, you know, we walked 45 minutes uh, each way. Uphill both ways. Uphill both ways <laughs> in, the, in snow. the snow. No <laughs> shoes. <laughs> literally in the snow. No. But the pastor and his family made sure that we had food and a meal and sometimes a ride home. I was given opportunities uh, in, in my community of worship to um, do public speaking, to welcome the guests, to sing in a choir, to organize a junior choir. These things helped me to come out of my quiet, shy shell 
and to find my voice. Um, uh, countless mentors in my life, countless caring adults who were pouring into me and saying your life will be better than it started. Education's certainly at the center of that, but there's nothing more important than having those great mentors and education. You put all that together, and it meant a better experience for me, and it has driven my decision to enter into public service. Well, I'm before a, we get to that, you yes. went to Temple University. Go out. And you ran for what? Class, student body student president. Student body president. Mm-hmm. What was John your campaign slogan? What was your platform? Like, th- these were early political days. It was. Um, you're going to love this. My my roommate in college wanted to be student body president. And he asked me to run as his vice president. I really wasn't interested. But I was like, <laughs> all right. And we won. And then I started to see how you could use government and politics to make a difference. We focus heavily on more funding in higher education. We asked our university to divest from the South African government at that time because it was a time when black South Africans did not have a vote or a voice. Seeing our university divest, it really like triggered some thoughts for me that maybe I'd have a career one day in politics. My, my slogan when I ran to become student body president and when I was elected, unity in diversity. And, and it's a message that I would use today with all this turmoil that we have. We have to recognize the diversity that we have, but see that we also have a lot of unity. You know, that was... That's impressive. You kind of already had the political yeah, speak a, down. A I mean, that's a, that's a pretty, you know... I mean, thank you. I don't know that I had it all plotted, <laughs> plotted out like that, but I'm sad that 30, 40 years later, we're still having the same conversations. And I believe that most Californians want more. We can do more and um, and we can do more together. But it was a great experience. It, it opened up my eyes to the possibility of, of politics as a way to make change. Before I ever put my name on a ballot, I was a social worker and I spent 20 years first as a social worker and then I ran and I'm trying to bring those same social work values of making change to politics. And uh, I'm grateful that we've been able to get a lot done. We've got you know, universal preschool for every three and four year old, universal meals for every hungry student in our state. You know, we've secured the, the funding to recruit 10,000 counselors to help our kids who've been through depression and anxiety. And so I'm just really thrilled and grateful that we've been able to have these accomplishments and we can do great things for students and their families here in the state of California. And yet you have some people say, do we even need a state superintendent of public instruction? They say we have a president of the state board of ed. What's the case, I guess, you've made through your work that this is a vital position? And would you suggest having now uh, in your second term any changes to the to the job? Well, I think we should give the state superintendent more direct ability to affect what happens in education. Um, you know, we have a relationship to help a thousand school districts and they each have their own school boards. And so, yeah, we have local control and I value that. I was a school board member and all the bad decisions that got passed down to our local board are the reasons why I ran for the state legislature in the first place. But we should give the state superintendent more uh, budget authority to be able to move programs in the state. What I've done, because of the absence of that power and authority to do those things, I've used, you know, the microphone that this job gives me to sponsor legislation to get things done. Um, This year, I sponsored 20 bills in the legislature. Many of them already have been signed into law that are going to allow us to provide more resources to kids who have dyslexia. Uh, We have more resources to bring retired teachers back into the classroom. We have a major shortage in this state. So I've had to be more creative in how I do my work 
<clears throat> I've had, I work very closely with our governor and with our legislature to get things done, like the $6 billion that I helped to secure to have more Internet access for our students. Our students don't need hotspots. They need access to top technology so they're ready for the jobs of tomorrow in STEAM, in computer science. Um, you know, we need folks who are ready to, um, you know, teach in our classes. I'm offering a $20,000 scholarship to anybody who wants to become a teacher in California, who wants to become a mental health clinician in our schools. Just give me a call. 1-800-GET-AT-ME and I got your scholarship <laughs> right here. Um, or at the other number uh, or other email, teach in CA at CD ca.ca.gov if you will that shameless plug that's a first uh, it's usually a campaign website so we'll take we'll take <laughs> the cde website um <laughs> i want to talk a little about the pandemic but i also want to ask uh, something there have been questions raised in the media about your management style yeah. some former employees claiming a toxic work culture saying yeah. you don't allow staff to disagree with you i'm curious about your response but also like how do you just describe your management style you know, my, my management style is very participatory. I ask people what they think. You know, I want to get the best ideas. And I've always believed that the way you get there is you hire the smartest people and you bring teams together to answer questions. And all those bills that I talked to you about, I pull together local superintendents, school board members, people with expertise to help us design solutions to the challenges that we have. It's very painful to hear people say the things that they've said, and I'll just say that it's just flat out untrue. Um, and I'll say at the same time, I'm someone who's driving to make change. If you ask me to go slow while we have 200,000 homeless students, while we have students who are struggling to read or do basic math, I'm gonna be honest, I'm always gonna push to say we must do more and we must do better by our students. But I listen to all voices. I'm grateful for the staff that we have. We have 2,000 staff members at the California Department of Education. I'm proud to lead them and to work with them. And anybody who has a question about my management style, you know, don't just take my answers for it. Talk to the people on my executive team, some of the most talented leaders anywhere, some of the most diverse leaders anywhere, very thoughtful people who are working together to do great things for our 6 million students. Well, COVID certainly upended public education uh, during your time as state superintendent. I want to ask you specifically about a vote that the legislature and, and Governor Newsom through the budget took in the summer of 2020 to allow local school districts a really great deal of flexibility when it came to allowing for distance learning. Was that a mistake given how we saw things play out in the 2020-2021 school year in places like San Francisco? Was that a mistake to give school districts so much leeway over distance learning and in many cases opting not to reopen schools? I would say that the biggest challenge that we had started immediately when the pandemic began and we learned that there were a million students in our state without a computer or access to high-speed internet. How could that be in a state with Silicon Valley and all the technological advances that we have in this state? And so I literally went out and got donations to get computers to kids. We got a million computers and uh, a million uh, uh, hotspots for students. And then I sponsored a bill that helped us to get $6 billion for broadband in our state. I, I basically got commitments out of all of the internet service providers to provide low-cost internet, $15 a month. You know, we should never be in a position again 
where our students are, are, are affected by this digital divide. And of course, that has created learning gaps for our students. Mm-hmm. And we're working through those learning gaps. But I'll just tell you, California is better positioned than any other state in the nation to help our students recover from those learning gaps. And here's the thing. Say what you want about California schools. I wish we had the hindsight to know what the impacts of COVID would be. But a million people lost their lives during COVID. Our first move was to listen to the public health folks. How do we keep kids safe? And at the same time, how do we find a way to get them, um, you know, a great education? Now, look, I'm a person who likes to be in person with other people. It's it, I would say most of us, it's our nature. We don't want to be isolated. But during a pandemic, a worldwide pandemic, what choice did we have but to use distance learning? And uh, if we'd had the resources and tools, maybe our students would have had a better experience. But the reality is, is that all across this nation, students in every state, even those that open sooner than California schools, students experience learning gaps. But we, to be fair, I mean, when you look at like math proficiency, it did fall here more than the national average. We're running out of time. But I, I, who who do you feel like is accountable for that? Is it at the local level? Is there, you know, was there a bigger role the state could have played? I hope we have more time to, to go through it all. Know. You know, it's a complex, a complex web of things. And I think the reality is that the pandemic upended all of our lives. Um Hundreds of thousands of kids have lost a parent, and in some cases, more than one parent. Um, and, and that's just the reality. And this state has done more than most to address that. But in a state with local control, there is no one button to push to say all schools come back at the same time. I certainly don't have it within my office to do. If I did, I'd be happy to use it. Um, you would have. <laughs> I'd be happy to use it. I think it's easy to, to point to blame. Um, and if people want to push blame in my direction, I'll accept that. But I'm more interested in what's the solution. Yeah. Uh, this is where we are for students everywhere in the nation. What's the solution? I, I'm not going to sit here and rest on my laurels. But I'll tell you, I've secured funding to allow us to recruit 10,000 mental health clinicians to help our kids. Uh, I've been able to get $500 million to make sure we have reading coaches in the schools that have the highest needs around literacy. If you look at where we were before the pandemic, there were deficiencies that, that got worse in the pandemic. We're focused now on how we get better in the state of California. That is State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tony Thurman. Thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Guy Marzarati. Our engineer today is Christopher Beal. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We'll see you next time. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.